Lumos. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Quidditch. So to summarize the chapter, Harry's first Quidditch game is the next day, and he's very nervous. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are huddling together out on the grounds, cuddling around a fire, and Snape bumps into them and takes Harry's copy of Quidditch Through the Ages as an excuse to take five points from Gryffindor. Harry goes to the staff room later that night to try to get it back, and he sees Snape showing Filch his mangled leg and makes reference to the three-headed dog. Harry and Ron decide that this means that Snape let the troll in as a distraction to get past the dog. The next day at the game, Harry's broom starts jerking out of control, which can only happen if it's being jinxed. Hermione spots Snape muttering under his breath with her binoculars, decides he's the one jinxing the broom, and discreetly sets fire to his robes to distract him, knocking Quirrell into the front row as she does so. Harry's broom calms down, and in all the confusion he catches the snitch in his mouth and wins the game. Then the trio goes to Hagrid's hut after the game and tell him their theory about Snape trying to steal whatever the dog is guarding, which Hagrid strongly denies, but he then accidentally reveals that the dog, Fluffy, is his, and that someone named Nicholas Flamel is involved in whatever it is that he's guarding. So first off, I want to talk just a little bit about the opening of this chapter. Um, I think it's very descriptive of Rowling's particular writing style around um, seasonal transitions, particularly. Um, so it begins, As they entered November, the weather turned very cold. The mountains around the school became icy gray, and the lake like chilled steel. Every morning the ground was covered in frost. Haggard could be seen from the upstairs windows, defrosting broomsticks on the Quidditch field, bundled up in a long moleskin overcoat, rabbit fur gloves, and enormous beaver skin boots. So well, this is evocative of, you know, a lot of really good imagery, but also particularly Rowling's style, whenever there's like a an elapsed time, a lot of elapsed time at once, she likes to describe how time has progressed by the seasons changing. So here it's moving from Halloween into November, um, and she's describing the passage of time by saying it's it's becoming winter now. Everything is cold and, and the mountains are turning gray and Hagrid has to go out and defrost the rooms before they can play Quidditch because it's so cold out. Yeah, I like this part of her writing style. I think it's very kind of, ma- it feels very magical. Yeah, it's evocative it's of, of like, like magical imagery. Yeah, just the, you think of just like things flowing along and turning into new seasons and. Yeah, absolutely. So this chapter, we get a lot of conspiracy theories kind of surrounding Snape and his involvement in whatever's going on at Hogwarts. So we know that it was really Quirrell um, who led in the troll, as we discussed last chapter. And we also speculated about what might have happened with him. So we here, and Harry and Ron, get proof that Snape at least had an encounter with the dog, but not the nature of the encounter. Right. Like, so we know that he got mauled by the dog. Right. But we don't know whether it was, like, in an effort to stop Quirrell or, like, trying to get past the dog to then, like, stop Quirrell later or something else. So we don't really know. So they take this as proof that Snape is trying to get past the dog to steal whatever the dog's guarding. But we know this is not the case. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting, like, the pairing, Snape and Filch. Why would Snape go to Filch for help with his wound and not Madame Pomfrey and other staff, you know, is... Dumbledore ordering him to keep things quiet or go to Filch? Yeah, it's odd. Um, I mean, as we discussed last episode, we know that Dumbledore had been ordering Snape to to sort of follow Quirrell around and make sure he's not up to anything suspicious. So it was on Dumbledore's orders that he was injured. So you would think that at least he could go to Dumbledore for, you know, treatment and healing. Mm -hmm. We also know that Snape can 
cure wounds, most wounds, by himself mm-hmm. with Essence of Dittany and various other poultices and potions that he has in his stores. So, you know, either this is a, a bite that can't be healed by typical magical means or, and probably both of these things, um, Dumbledore is asking him to not raise suspicion about what's happening by, like, going to Madame Pomfrey and having his injury be very public. Yeah, I mean, that the second part makes sense. You know, Madame Pomfrey, that would probably start rumors. But what is Filch actually doing here? Is he... It's unclear. So I think that they chose Filch for a couple reasons. First of all, he's he's an unsavory character. The reader obviously doesn't like him already because of Mm -hmm. his attempts to catch Harry. He's seen as sort of like a, you know, crotchety old man who just is out for vengeance against the kids for some reason and so the pairing of the two of them juxtaposes snape who we already don't like um with filch that's you know very evocative of like negative feelings and negative connotations so the reader is like associating the two of them as both being bad in some way maybe they're in cahoots or maybe you know filch is the only one snape could trust to go to with this injury he wouldn't ask questions or whatever Mm -hmm. or maybe you know even one step further maybe filch is in on whatever plan i mean that would be kind of crazy but it's not a huge leap for an 11-year-old reading this book for the first time to be like, Filch is bad too. Maybe they're all bad the same, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting. I didn't. I completely forgot that this scene occurred, actually. Um, so. Yeah, me too, actually. I, I usually don't forget about big scenes like that, but I didn't remember that he uh, went to Filch for treatment. Yeah. It's interesting, though. I, I wonder if maybe it was just written that way to give Harry and the reader like an obvious clue in about his injury. Mm-hmm. The way that they addressed it in the film um, was they had Snape's leg be exposed for a second in the scene with the troll. Mm-hmm. And then he like quickly covers it, but Harry like notices before mm-hmm. he covers it. That's almost maybe a better I think it's way. like a better way of doing yeah. it, actually, yeah. But this scene in in this chapter is there for a purpose, and the purpose is to inform Harry that his hunch... Well, it reinforces his hunch from before that Snape had something to do with the troll. And for him, then it becomes sort of a single track mind of like, it's obviously Snape now. And we can throw out everything that doesn't agree with that. Right. And so similarly, during the game, um, Hermione thinks that she stopped Snape from cursing Harry. But it was really her knocking into Quirrell that did the trick because Mm -hmm. Quirrell was the one um, jinxing Harry. So Snape actually saw what Coral was doing and was trying to stop him with a counter jinx. So we know this has happened, but now Hermione is now quickly convinced that Snape is evil, even though she had not believed it before. Yeah, and and it's actually interesting when I was reading this, I had thought, thinking back on it, that Hermione sees Snape talking, you know, mouthing under his breath and looking at Harry and then decides he's jinxing it. And so it must be Snape doing it. But in fact, what happens in this chapter is she is told that no kid could be doing this to Harry's broom. It would have to be a dark magic. And she immediately looks towards Snape to check whether he's doing it. Mm -hmm. So it isn't just like, a, you know, she's she's only taking the facts and then building a case. It's like it is a little bit of her judgment here saying that Snape's been doing a lot of dodgy things lately maybe let's just check and see if he's the one doing this to Harry first. Yeah, Um, and I think as of now, he's the person that she especially and all of these, you know, young kids kind of associate with evil because he looks pretty (laughs) evil and 
is mean to them and all this stuff. And when you're 11, it's kind of hard to distinguish between someone who is a bully and someone who is like evil in a more global sense of the word. Yeah, but it is interesting because she kind of had this, seems to have had this naive view that teachers can do no wrong. Um, Yeah. And especially even one chapter ago, she was like yelling at Harry and Ron as being like ridiculous when they were suggesting that Snape might have been up to something. Right. But now she sees this evidence, which is basically like anyone who saw this evidence would lead pretty much to the same conclusion that Snape is doing this and that Snape Mm -hmm. is, you know, trying to get past the dog. Like the evidence that they have right now makes sense, especially for them being 11. And right. I mean, the evidence is. You know, Snape's injured by the by the dog. Snape wasn't in the dungeons with the rest of the staff on Halloween. He was trying to cover up the injury. And now he's what looks like jinxing Harry's broom. We see him mouthing at Harry with, you know, with eye contact. And Hermione says, you know, eye contact is necessary for jinxes like that. So yeah. all the evidence would indicate that, that this is, uh, you know, Snape trying to jinx Harry. So Yeah, and... Um, just because she happens to be wrong doesn't mean that she has poor judgment because we'll talk a little bit more about her later, but on the contrary, when she realizes she was wrong, she becomes one of Snape's most ardent defenders in the series. Absolutely. Yeah. And later on in the series, she'll keep coming back to this instance actually of Snape saving Harry's life at Quidditch when they all thought that he was trying to kill him. And she'll keep bringing it back to that and saying, don't you remember guys? Every time we Mm -hmm. think Snape's the bad guy, it turns out that Mm -hmm. he's the good guy. So... Let's calm down a little. Um, And Hagrid also defends Snape in this chapter ardently, like Hermione does later on. And it's very interesting because Hagrid doesn't really offer an alternative explanation. He doesn't say who he thinks could be jinxing the broom. He just says, nonsense, Snape wouldn't be doing this. Snape's Mm -hmm. loyal to Dumbledore and would never betray him. And Harry's broom must have just, you know, freaked out for some reason. And because he doesn't offer an alternative explanation that the reader could find reasonable. Um, the reader most likely sees Hagrid as being naive here um, because he's he's putting so much blind faith in Dumbledore and Snape and saying, you know, the teachers can do no wrong, basically. Mm-hmm. And although he happens to be right in this case, it is interesting that we are looking at him through that lens right now. Yeah, and I mean, Hagrid is a really interesting character, and we'll see this a lot more as the books go on. Mm-hmm. But he does, you know, have some poor judgment at times, of course, but he does, I think, have good instincts, and I think he does know the staff at Hogwarts quite well because he's been there for so long and has such an sort of insider access to these things. Yeah. So I think it's obviously reading it for the first time, you may think he's naive, and now we know that he's happens to be right by chance, but looking back on it now, I think, well, he, he was right by chance, but he also has these instincts, and... I think he knows that Snape would not do anything that Dumbledore would not approve of. I think the big thing with Hagrid is that he always has faith in Dumbledore. Right, exactly. You know, he doesn't really talk about the rest of the staff too much, but his basis, his sort of moral grounding for everything Mm -hmm. is Dumbledore. Mm -hmm. And he says, basically, if it's good enough for Dumbledore, it's good enough for me. I'm not going to question him or go against Mm -hmm. his judgment. And if Dumbledore tells me straight up that Snape is trustworthy then Snape is trustworthy, and that's as far as I need to go. And that's not enough for Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Right. Um, at least not right now. But it is enough for Hagrid. And I think that actually makes him one of the most morally strong characters in the series, where he's he's simple, but it's like there's a strength in that simplicity, where he doesn't really question 
his own morals very often because um, his moral center is Dumbledore and he yeah. he always has faith in that. Yeah, and I think it'll be really interesting later to discuss Dumbledore's own failings and mm-hmm. how that trust may not always be the best thing. So we know from our discussion last chapter when Dumbledore asked Snape to tail Quirrell and figure out what he's doing, we know that Dumbledore is at least aware of the possibility that Quirrell is a baddie, right? So, and Snape definitely is because he's already stopped him once with the mm-hmm. with the dog. Um, and he's stopping him now at the Quidditch match. So this leads to some very troubling questions. Now that Snape and presumably Dumbledore know that Quirrell has attempted to kill Harry, is attempted murder not a thing you can charge people with in wizard society? Well, and I'm is there sure enough evidence it is. For this? I mean, I mean, I I'm sure it is. I think that this is a case of a pretty large plot hole. Um, J.K. Rowling does have a few of these in the series, and I think this is the first one um, that I hadn't really thought about until this read-through. But, of course, like, why would they allow someone who had just tried to murder a student continue to teach at the school? Yeah, if I'm a parent and I hear that a teacher tried to murder a student and then they just let him keep teaching for seven more months, (laughs) I'm pulling my student out. Like, (laughs) Dumbledore, what kind of a school are you running here, man? Like, So, I mean, there's, I, there is really no logical explanation. I mean... Because we can conclude that Snape did tell Dumbledore about this. If he is keeping it, as you said, if he is keeping an eye on Quirrell for Dumbledore, which we know he is, at least by this point, I'm sure. And even Mm -hmm. if he's not, even if they haven't had this conversation yet for some reason, he would probably still tell Dumbledore he doesn't have anything to gain by hiding Quirrell's. Yeah, and I would assume that Dumbledore is at the game. Dumbledore is usually at the game. Mm-hmm. So even if Dumbledore's not at the game, Snape's definitely going to tell him about right. this. And, you know, all they would need would be a truth serum or a priori incantatum on Quirrell's wand, and they would get all they need to know about his attempted murder, because that's what it was. He was trying to kill Harry. So, I mean, that leads me into another question. What is Dumbledore's endgame strategy here? If he knows Quirrell's a baddie... What is he trying to do about it? He knows that Quirrell is probably after the Philosopher's Stone. He knows that Quirrell is potentially working for Voldemort. He doesn't have any definitive link between the two, but he at least knows that he's trying to steal the stone and that he's tried to kill Harry. So what what is his strategy here? I mean, what what is he going for? I mean, I don't know if we're, you know, if we're actually analyzing this and not just thinking about it as a huge plot hole, then the only thing I can think of would be some sort of fear i mean either for him not for himself probably but for the school maybe he really does not know what's going on here and he does not know if confronting coral would lead to some unforeseen circumstances i mean remember this is the first book in this series so this is 11 years after Voldemort has or 10, well, 10 years, years after yeah. Voldemort has banished um the you know, people are kind of living in a time where things have been good for a while. But it's like antebellum south right now. I mean, it's like and they're like on War. edge. You know, they're all, but they're always still on edge and kind of have this past trauma that they're like coming back to. So having these things that are kind of reminding them of times like I don't, I don't know. Maybe people are in denial, or maybe they're just scared of what yeah, is I to would, come. I would agree with that if it were anybody else. But Dumbledore's never been one to sit on his hands and be passive. Right. You know, he, I mean, he was all about 
confronting the issue when it was clear that Voldemort had returned in Goblet of Fire. Right. I mean, I think, I honestly just think this is a plot hole, and I think... But if it's not a plot hole, what is Dumbledore planning here? If he does know about what's happening, is his plan to... Oh, here's an interesting idea. So Dumbledore knows that the only way to get through all of the protections surrounding the stone is through the Mirror of Erised, Mm -hmm. which we'll cover next chapter. And that leads me to another question, actually, before I get to that. Is the stone in the mirror right now? Or does he only move the mirror down into the Philosopher's Stone chamber to keep the Philosopher's Stone safe? Like, like, is the stone in the mirror... Probably the second one. Yeah, is the stone in the mirror now? Or is the stone just, like, in a room somewhere and he has to move the mirror down to, like, put the stone in there? Probably the second one. But go back to your first question. So so if, if, if the stone is in the mirror of Erised already... And the only way to get to the stone is by desiring not to use it, but to have it, to keep it safe. Then he knows that no one who wants it selfishly can ever have it. So he knows that he doesn't need to worry about protecting it from anybody, including Quirrell, because he knows that he'll never figure out how to get past it. So that's one option. The other option is he has a lot of blind faith in the staff um, that have signed up to protect the stone and his own abilities. And he's being a little bit arrogant here and assuming that no one will be able to make a move while they're all there and they're all protecting it. But even so, it's still pretty weird of him to let Coral continue teaching, having tried to kill a student. Right. I think that's the most. I think that's the most damning plot hole in the, in the thing, but you know, uh, overlooking that, I mean, there's still a lot else to talk about in this chapter. Um, so let's get into some stuff about Quidditch. So Harry's really anxious about his first Quidditch game. And this makes sense, especially because he keeps hearing all these rumors and legends about Seekers specifically getting hurt. Right. And he's a Seeker, and so he's kind of scary. Um, I think there's a moment where Seamus tells him, you know, make sure you eat lots of breakfast, Harry. You need your strength. Seekers are always the ones that get clobbered. Yeah. And Harry's like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. And he's 11. Remember, that's like, this is a big, it's like a kind of a big performance sport. For and he's being, going up so against young. people who are 15, 16, 17. I mean, that's a big age gap. Yeah, it's a huge 11. age gap. It kind of makes no sense. But um, well, well, that's he... why they don't let first years on the team, really. Right, except I mean, for now. It's, I'm assuming it's probably for the 11-year-old's safety more probably. than anything else. Yeah. When we first got to the Quidditch pitch, one thing that I had forgotten about was that um, Hermione makes a Potter for President sign. I thought that was just weird. Like, for some reason, it well, weirded me out. Um, Dean Thomas makes it. Oh, Dean Thomas and makes it. And then Hermione enchants it to, to have, like, a um, the letters flash or something like it's that. It's just kind of... I actually wonder if it's the same in the British version. Yeah, I don't know. Um, you mean, like, the President thing? Yeah. I mean, President just has a better ring to it in this context than Prime Minister. Yeah, but... but I don't know. Just President is weird. Like... In the UK, like, I know they have precedents of things, but Societies, not... Yeah. You know. It's just... I thought it was just a weird... Just in general, a weird sign, even if you are in the US. Well, it's alliterative. But <laughs> that's kind of besides the point. But probably my favorite thing about the Quidditch games is Lee Jordan's commentary. Oh, yeah. It's very entertaining, and it seems challenging to write, which we'll get to, but I just really like the humor between him and Professor McGonagall. Oh, yeah, it's always so funny. Absolutely great banter, yeah. especially when he was trying to 
be unbiased talking about the foul on I think it was Angelina Johnson when Flint just like grabs her head pretending that it's the quaffle or something like that I forget what exactly it was oh no it was when Flint blocks Harry intentionally and you're not you're not allowed to interfere with seekers that's like part of the rules of the game and he's like trying to commentate on it in an unbiased way he's just like after that revolting and disgusting foul and yeah. goes like Jordan I'm warning you yeah uh, and he's just like all right all right <laughs> Flint nearly kills the Gryffindor Seeker, which I'm sure could have happened to anyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's uh, my favorite part, probably. But you mentioned something there that I do want to expand on more, which is um, Rowling's dislike of writing Quidditch games in general. I think that in inventing Quidditch, I mean, it, it's great to have like a school sport, you know, something that ties the school together. Obviously, it serves a lot of purposes for the characters. It makes Harry good at something. It you know we get to see inter house competition, collegiality and enmity, but also she clearly finds them really boring and challenging to write because of how often she just straight up writes Quidditch out of the book. And she's or, mentioned that. Before. Yeah, and she has mentioned that in interviews and stuff. But it, I mean, it's clear to see, um, you know, halfway through Chamber of Secrets, there's no more Quidditch matches. Even at the end of this book, Harry mm-hmm. misses the last Quidditch match because I think it it just gets very difficult to write. A compelling narrative about a sports game for her. I don't think that's her forte. Um, she keeps having to write these crazy twists into each match to keep them interesting and engaging for the reader. But obviously, you can only have so many of those before it seems stale. Even that, like here, she has the Coral and Snape jinxing interaction. Harry nearly gets thrown off his broom, and he catches a snitch in his mouth. So three, yeah. three kind of insane things happening this match. Next match, I think it's just that. Snape is the referee, and he's giving all the penalties to Hufflepuff, and then Harry catches the snitch in about five minutes. Mm -hmm. So, like, she keeps having to write these, like, very interesting, like, narrative twists into the matches to keep them fresh, but she doesn't have, like, unlimited number of those. So she writes them out and, and just writes around it a lot. So I think it's interesting to see that, like, one of the tools that she came into the world with you know, I'm going to have this sport. It's going to be really cool. We're going to have four balls and seven players. And it's really exciting. And it's obviously a very, very interesting sport. But then she, I think, has regretted writing about it so much mm-hmm. because she's had to like come back to it every year and keep writing these matches that just probably aren't very interesting for her to write. Yes. And um, something that you mentioned was Harry hashing the snitch in his mouth. And so... Um, we'll just make a note here that later on, Harry catches the snitch in this way, and it will become very important in the Deathly Hallows as a plot point. Right. So just uh, remember that for later. We'll come back to that in about, I don't know, several hundred episodes. <laughs> yeah. But I, I will say that in this particular instance, um, the chapter needed to have a Quidditch game, obviously. It's a very good example of the enmity between Slytherin House and Gryffindor House. Like, we're seeing basically the way that they compete. It's a good allegory for, like, good and evil overall in the story, where Gryffindor would be the good guys, Slytherin is the evil guys. In the way that they play, it's very evident. Marcus Flint, in particular, the captain of the Slytherin team, seems like an incredibly devious and scummy character. You know, he takes the opportunity to score five goals while no one's paying attention because everyone's concerned about Harry almost getting killed by his broom. Um, you know, it's just kind of like underhanded, sneaky, scummy behavior. And that's sort of, I think, Rowling writing allegorically about sort of the bad guys in a very general sense. 
So we mentioned Hermione a little bit earlier, but um, mm-hmm. her character really grows a lot in this chapter. Um, she, first of all, helps the boys with their homework. So she's showing that she's is compassionate and generous even when it comes to school. But she still does not let them copy her homework mm-hmm. because she still values hard work and learning as she should and doesn't want them to get by easily. Um, but she does help them. And she's also okay with breaking the rules. She, um, when Snape comes upon them and takes away Harry's book, they're huddling around a little illegal fire in a jar that she's... Right, because it's cold out. And yeah, be outside. she's made that. And so she is okay with doing that. It's a small thing. It's not hurting anyone. And she also attacked a teacher to save her friend. She does attack Snape because she believes that he's cursing Harry. And, you know, she he doesn't get hurt. She quickly, quickly puts out the fire that she sets to his robes. But she does it, and it's risky, and she that's a big deal. Yeah, no, it's very different behavior than we saw even a couple of chapters ago. Huge about face for Hermione's character. I mean, over the course of... From the Midnight Duel to Halloween to now here at Quidditch, she's gone from being upset um, at Harry and Ron for breaking the rules because it would negatively impact Gryffindor House in some way to now breaking the rules along with them and even acting in a way that could get her expelled if she were caught um, in order to save her friend. Right. Because it was what was right and she felt like she needed to act. This is a very different Hermione than we have seen in the past. And she shows her skills here that will come into play throughout the entire series. She can act very quickly and decisively decisively (laughs) when there's a lot on the line. And her intelligence and her quick thinking are demonstrated here. So Mm -hmm. um, that's always been evident. But she will do something and she will get away with it. Yeah. She's very good at getting away with it because she stays out of sight. Although it's funny because she's, it says that she's like staying out of sight, but she actually knocks Quirrell headfirst into the front row. Yeah, I feel no like someone one... would notice that. <laughs> I know. Maybe they blame someone else. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe she's just so small at 11 years old that she uh, wasn't noticed. But the attack on Harry by Quirrell that they think is Snape means it proves to the trio and to really everybody that there is definitively a person or maybe several persons at Hogwarts who either want Harry dead or at least out of the way. And they think that it's connected to whoever's trying to steal whatever it is that the dog is guarding, but it could be separate. We don't really have enough information at this point to really know that. But from their perspective, it looks like Snape is behind all of these things at once. His motive for wanting to kill Harry is unclear. Harry thinks that Snape really doesn't like him for some particular reason, but he doesn't know what it is. But it does seem like a big leap to go from not liking someone to wanting to kill them. So I'll be interested to see on a further read through what Harry comes up with as a possible explanation for Snape's behavior. Mm-hmm. Like, does he think that Harry is like onto him somehow? And that like maybe offing Harry would, would be a distraction from whatever Snape is doing? I mean, that seems kind of extreme. And I think you noticed something else about uh, the changes in perspective in this chapter. Yeah, so um, there are changes in perspective, which is something that rarely happens that we move away from Harry's point of view. Um, But here we get just some of the spectators in the stand. So a little bit of Hagrid, Hermione, Ron, not even anyone specifically. um, But Yeah, it's more of like a third person omniscient kind of view. Yeah, but it's kind of, you know, it's definitely not with Harry. And it was a little bit 
jarring or at least noticeable because we are always with Harry and mm-hmm. always Harry's perspective and he'll see other people doing things, but it's always from his point of view. So it was interesting that there was a time while Harry was kind of prepping for the game, then there would be a paragraph like Hermione and Ron were, you know, sitting in the stands with their signs. So mm-hmm. I just, I thought that was interesting. It did give you kind of a sense of, yeah. you know, the whole, the whole scene there. But you could tell that it was necessary because for this scene to make sense, we have to get a reason why Harry's broom is freaking out. And the only way that he would know, or not that he would know, because he can't, he's too far away. Um, so the only way that the reader could find out what's happening is to get the perspective of the people who are in the stands watching it. So yeah, I mean, it was, you're right, it was a very cool little writing thing to see that perspective shift so abruptly. But um, it was it was good writing, I think. It, it works smoothly in the context of the chapter. So in the final page of this chapter, really, after the game when the trio is in Hagrid's hut, Hagrid reveals some information accidentally. Um, so first of all, he reveals that Fluffy is the name of the three-headed dog and that he, Hagrid, bought this dog from a Greek man in a pub, which confirms that this dog is basically a reference to Cerberus of Greek legend. Right, the uh, the dog that guards the gates of Hades. It's nice to for, for J.K. Rowling to do that little tie-in where it was bought by a Greek man, so mm-hmm. that brings the whole like mythology together there. Um, and the second thing is that Fluffy is, in fact, guarding something important um, because he makes reference to saying, well, that's, bet- you know, you guys forget about whatever that dog's guarding. And then the third thing is that a man named Nicholas Flamel is involved and that he has some connection to Dumbledore. So as the reader, even of just this first book, we actually have already heard of Nicholas Flamel. And that is on the wizard card that Harry gets. Dumbledore's wizard card, right? Yes. Dumbledore's wizard card that Harry unwraps from a chocolate frog, which contains the passage, Dumbledore is particularly famous for his work on alchemy with his partner, Nicholas Flamel. So this not only establishes that Nicholas Flamel you know, is someone in the world, but also that he has a link to Dumbledore. Right. So this is something that Harry does not remember, and um, I didn't remember. Most readers probably don't remember. But um, this is kind of a little seed that has been planted already from Chapter 6. Yeah, and this is a very common trick that mystery authors will do, is they will plant a seed or a tiny little bit of information early on in the book um, that will become very important later if you can remember it, and if the characters can remember it. Um, so in this case, it's that Nicholas Flamel appears on Dumbledore's wizard card. But most people reading this wouldn't remember that, because that's such a you know skippable passage. It's really not that important in the context. But here, it becomes important. And if you can remember um, that Nicholas Flamel had been mentioned at some point, you know, then maybe that'll, that'll help you figure out what's happening. And Harry will think, I've heard that name before. Where have mm-hmm. I heard that name before? And it'll be sort of just on the edge of his memory and he can't quite remember it. Um, and then eventually he does receive another Dumbledore wizard card and he realizes where he had heard the name before Right. in that moment. So the other link that we have about what the dog could be guarding, um, if it's related to Nicholas Flamel and Dumbledore, is that it's probably something to do with alchemy because that's what it says on the card, his Dumbledore's work with alchemy with Nicholas Flamel. So right. that is the clue. And, uh, of course, Nicholas Flamel, um, if you're like a real history buff or literary buff, um, was actually a real person. He lived in uh, 14th century Paris with his wife, Perenelle, 
Uh, he was a scribe and manuscript author. He gave generously to various charitable causes. Uh, he lived into his 80s. He died in 1418 and was buried in a church in Paris. To be fair, we did not know these details. We did look them up. Yeah, I did some research for this. <laughs> but it wasn't until the 17th century that people began associating him with alchemy. Specifically, literature started associating him with alchemy. People would write books about alchemy, and they would say, Nicholas Flamel, the, the great alchemist, he was the one who created the Philosopher's Stone and used the elixir of life to achieve immortality. And so that was the first time that this really sort of ch started showing up. Um, and then, of course, it became very famous in Victor Hugo's novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, wherein the protagonist is trying to learn about alchemy through um, various texts that Flamel had supposedly written on the subject. Um, but if you do know all of that, then this Nicholas Flamel clue is basically all you need to know to figure out that the object that everyone is trying to go after in this book is the Philosopher's Stone. If it wasn't obvious from the title, then you would <laughs> yeah. definitely know it from, from reading about Nicholas Flamel, for sure. And uh, as an aside, um, for all of us Americans who, for us, the book is called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the reason why on this podcast we're saying Philosopher's Stone instead is because uh, the book title doesn't really make a lot of sense for the American version. The, the reason they changed it um, was because the American book publishers thought that the word philosopher might be a little too heady for children in the United States. So they picked another word just to make it easier for the publishers, I guess. Um, but the Philosopher's Stone is actually a real concept that has been around and talked about in alchemy for centuries. So that actually makes sense um, for the object in this book to be called the Philosopher's Stone, whereas the Sorcerer's Stone is a thing that's entirely made up just for this book. So, yeah. So we're not just trying to be pretentious and use the British version. It's just because that is the real Yeah, it's the stone. one that makes sense. Saying Sorcerer's Stone doesn't mean anything to an alchemist, but Philosopher's Stone is a real thing that you can talk about. So that's why we're not being pretentious. Or at least we're not being really pretentious. About this. Yeah. <laughs> so if the current heroic trio has a weakness right now, it's that they've fixated on one piece of information or thought they adamantly believed that Snape was behind the jinx and the troll attack. Right, um, which they have every reason to believe at this which point. Which, of course, and we mentioned that any sort of reasonable person would assume that at this point. But Harry and Ron, in particular, are bad about this. Um, but Hermione gets caught up as well now. And Hagrid does the opposite, saying that a teacher would never do anything evil. So the truth is somewhere in the middle. We know Snape is a very complicated character. And he, as is a lot of people in this book, but he is definitely somewhere in the middle between um, good and evil. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's interesting to note that um, if it hadn't been for Hermione's chance pushing Quirrell into the front row by accident... The dealing with Snape might have actually had very nasty consequences for Harry. Snape was the one behind the counter jinx. Right. So if all she had achieved in going over there to stop Snape was to just stop Snape, Harry might have died. You know? So it's that sort of thing where it's this one track mind that they are on just by not considering the possibility that it could have been someone else jinxing Harry and looking over at Quirrell and seeing Quirrell mouthing the words. Um, right, and I think might that have been the difference. I think that um, Hermione's sort of quick action that we were talking about before often pays off for her, um, but it's actually quite similar to things that both Harry and Ron do, and I mm -hmm. think that has to do with their Gryffindor type traits because they are they are brave and, and um, they take risks and they go into things, but and things kind of work out for them often, but you know it won't always. It won't always, and it's risky, and maybe. 
um, you know, someone with different traits or just different personality would not, would have thought it through a little bit more. And, you know, there's pros and cons to that. But Yeah, sure. I think a Ravenclaw might have thought, well, Snape's doing something, but let me look around and see if anyone else is doing anything before we jump to conclusion. Right. I think that Hermione did what she thought was best, and I think it actually ended up being a pretty good decision. But it's important to note that if everything had gone exactly according to plan, Harry probably would have died. Yeah. And just thinking about that fact that all three of them are Gryffindors, and as time goes on, they will be more and more, you know, the three of them together fighting very dangerous um, enemies... That is something to think about as we sort of look back on our discussion of the houses and character traits mm-hmm. and see sort of what what are the pros and cons of <laughs> <laughs> Gryffindors, all of them being Gryffindors yes. and all of them having, you know, slightly different but similar core traits. And we will definitely see that more, I think, especially in the fifth book and the sixth book to some extent, when they really start getting into Dumbledore's army in earnest. Mm-hmm. We're going to start to see a lot of different perspectives on things, which I think is very helpful for Harry, Ron, and Hermione to get. Um, but for now, you're right. They're sort of in this bubble of Gryffindors where decisive action is like the best thing that you can do, even if there are consequences to that. Um, so it's not the best for their growth as people, but um, definitely helps them out of some tough spots. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and Quidditch. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. Feel free to email us at harrypodcast7 at gmail.com with any questions or comments you have. And stay tuned for next time when we gaze into chapter 12, The Mirror of Erised. I'm Madeline. And I'm David. And we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.